Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Killer Astrology, the podcast. I'm your host, Laura, and today we're traveling back to the early 1900s to learn more about a notorious killer whose twisted interests became the subject of many of the horror films that have terrified us for decades. This killer's name is Edward Theodore Gein. Ed Gein was born in 1906 in a small Wisconsin town. He was the second boy born to Augusta and George Gein, a rather unconventional pair. George's parents had drowned in a freak accident when he was just a young child, and he grew up to be a raging alcoholic with a terrible temper. Augusta Gein was a faithful Christian, whose beliefs teetered the line between devout and fanatical. The two were married in December of 1899, and went on to have a very tumultuous relationship, as you may expect. Ed's brother, Henry, was born four years before him, and the two generally had a good relationship. Ed had been severely bullied in school due to having a lazy eye, so he had very few friends. The lack of social connections was further accentuated by his mother's rules against having her kids mingle with their peers, as she didn't want them influenced by the common people in town. She moved their family to a farmhouse during their childhood for further separation. In that farmhouse, Ed's brother was essentially his only companion similar in age. He wasn't lonely, though, because he always had his mother to depend on. Ed worshipped Augusta and was always on her side, even if she treated him poorly and even if her beliefs were extreme. As he grew up, his love for his mother only intensified. As teenagers, Ed and Henry were allowed to go out into the community for work. They took odd jobs around town, and while Ed wasn't friends with the other kids in town, he was very well liked by the older population. He even babysat for a number of families in the area. His reputation for having a quiet temperament and calm personality may be part of the reason why no one suspected him when things in his life started to get weird. It started with his brother. Although it appeared that Ed and Henry generally got along well, they often fought over Ed's relationship with his mother. Henry recognized that Augusta was verbally abusive towards Ed and had trouble understanding why he idolized her so intensely. He had apparently confronted Augusta on multiple occasions and then brought this up with Ed on May 16, 1944. Later that same day, he died in a fire out in the plains, and many speculate now that Ed is to blame for the death, which wasn't investigated as a homicide when it happened, even though there wasn't a burn to be found on Henry's body. The story goes that Ed and his brother were fighting out in the field when a fire they had started expanded and Henry went missing. Ed had gone down to the town to organize a search party and funnily enough led the group to the exact site of Henry's body. His cause of death was ruled asphyxiation from smoke inhalation, but he also had strange bruises on his head from some kind of trauma. After Henry's death, Ed really didn't seem to mourn him very much. With Henry gone, there was no one standing in the way of his relationship with his mother. His father had passed away in 1940, so Ed and Augusta lived alone in their house. However, it wasn't long after Henry's death that Ed's mother Augusta had a stroke, and Ed was terrified that she might die. He took her to the doctor, who informed them that Augusta had suffered a stroke. So Ed began providing 24-7 care for his mother once he returned home. While some may feel burdened by this type of obligation, Ed was enjoying it. He was hoping that potentially he would gain more appreciation from her after she came out of her illness. He was mistaken, however, as she provided him with no additional gratitude. He continued to care for her, 
but she died from another stroke on December 29, 1945, and Ed was distraught. His way of grieving his mother was extreme, to say the least. He tried to immortalize her and immediately boarded up all of the rooms in the house in which she spent the most time. When police later searched his home following the crimes I'll describe in a minute, they found all of his mother's things in pristine condition. In addition to shutting down almost half of his house after his mother died, Ed stopped taking care of himself. He was regularly unshaven, even more reclusive, and allowed the rooms that he did occupy in his home to become increasingly more cluttered and dirty. He also started reading grisly magazines about murder and cannibalism. In 1954, after living this reclusive life for almost a decade, Ed was seen about seven miles from his home, at the house of Mary Hogan, who it is said bared a striking resemblance to his own mother. Mary worked at a bar in town that Ed was familiar with, and on December 8, 1954, he went down to town, waited until the bar was empty, and then entered and shot Mary in the head. He then dragged her body out on a sled and brought her all the way home. No one in town knew where her body had wound up, and no one knew who had killed her. But on occasion, Ed would be around when the townspeople spoke about her, and he had said on one or more occasions, she's not missing, her body is just down on the farm. And still, no one suspected him. They believed that he had been joking. It would be another three years before the people in Plainfield would tie Ed to Mary's murder, and to many other crimes. On November 16, 1957, Ed entered a hardware store where Bernice Warden was working. Bernice, who was also similar in appearance to Ed's mother, died instantly when Ed shot her in the head with a gun from her own shop. Just like he did with Mary, he removed her body and took it home. But this time, it wasn't long before police came knocking on his door. Well, someone else's door, actually. Ed was at the home of a neighbor, about to go for a ride with that neighbor's son, when police found him and questioned him. Later that day, police went back to Ed's home and found a gruesome scene. Bernice's body was tied to the ceiling by her feet. She had been completely decapitated and gutted. But this wasn't the only thing police found. The small area of the house in which Ed lived was completely riddled with dismembered body parts and bones. There were skulls turned into candle holders, a jacket made from a woman's torso, lampshades made from human skin, and organs in the refrigerator. What's equally, or maybe even more shocking, is that not all of the body parts found in his home were from people that Ed had killed. It turns out that over the past three years, Ed had been making regular trips to the cemetery and digging up the graves of people who had just been buried. He would go out alone at night with a shovel, open a coffin, and then strip the corpse of the body parts he wanted. Sometimes he would leave the rejected remains right there in the grave, and other times he'd take the body home with him, take what he wanted, and then leave the body outside. When Ed told the police about his nighttime excursions, they initially didn't believe him. They thought that he was trying to cover up more murders with a story about grave robbing, as four more missing persons cases had sprung up in the Plainfield area over the past few years. In order to solve the mystery, police exhumed two graves that Ed led them to, and indeed found incomplete remains. Ed's story was true. He ultimately confessed to grave digging on nine separate occasions. He also admitted to killing Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden. Ed went to court for his crimes in November of 1957, 
but pled not guilty and was ultimately deemed too insane to stand trial. This angered Plainfield citizens, who had known him all his life and really didn't consider him to be mentally ill. However, a psychiatrist diagnosed him with the modern equivalent of schizophrenia, and he was committed to Central State Hospital. He quickly became a model patient because he wasn't prescribed any drugs and was relatively easy to care for due to his tame personality. Because of the treatment he received at the hospital, Ed was pretty comfortable there. He generally liked where he was living and, for all intents and purposes, was happy to be there for years. In 1974, though, after 17 years of being committed, he petitioned to be released from the hospital. He was denied release due to his mental status and remained at Central State Hospital until his death in 1984. Because of the nature of his crimes, Ed has been nicknamed the Head Collector and has also been labeled a necrophiliac and cannibal, although it is unclear whether he actually consumed any of the body parts he collected. He was, however, the inspiration for the character Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, and he also inspired the killer Leatherface from The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was originally a 1959 book by Robert Bloch. His relationship with his mother also inspired the main character from Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. In addition to influencing screenwriters and authors, Ed has also been tied to missing persons cases from his era. Some wonder if he was involved in the disappearance of eight-year-old Georgia Weckler, or the case of Evelyn Hartley. Both minors went missing near Plainfield, Wisconsin in the 1950s. While Ed's involvement has been suspected, it has still never been proven. We may never know exactly how many people Ed killed between 1944 and 1957, but we can gain some insight into his actions by looking at his astrology which we'll do right now. Edward Theodore Gein was born on October 27, 1906 in La Crosse, Wisconsin. I was initially super excited about this chart because it's one of the only killer charts that I've been able to find a birth time for up to this point. Multiple astrology websites say that Ed was born at 11.30 p.m. on August 27th, but because he was born so long ago, the chances that he was born at exactly 11.30 are pretty slim. Even if someone did look at a clock immediately after his birth, that clock was probably slightly off. And I tend to harp on these little details partly because it's my personality and partly because they actually create big changes. For example, if Ed was born at exactly 11.30, Pluto is in his first house. But if he was born at 11.38, Pluto is in his 12th house, just a fraction of a degree from his ascendant line. That's only a small time difference, but a really big change. I'm going to be a little bit of a rebel here and say that I think those charts I found are slightly off, precisely for the reasons of the Pluto situation that I just described. Any planet that we have in our first house tends not to go unseen, and Pluto in the first house is super noticeable. It gives people with this placement an innate ability not just to see the dark in others, but to point it out to them. And this is often unwelcomed because people don't like to see their flaws. So this makes them stand out. And they also may stand out as people who are more forthcoming about their own dark sides. But Ed lived in Plainfield forever, and no one there had any inkling that he was so dark until after his crimes were exposed. Furthermore, Ed was completely unable to be critical of his mother's beliefs or actions and followed her blindly. This is not a Pluto in the first house kind of trait, 
as those people can typically pick up on what people are doing wrong and present it to them. When we put Pluto in Ed's 12th house, things just make a little bit more sense. We can tie his morbid actions to a 12th house Pluto gone wrong situation, where the compassion he's supposed to build over his lifetime turns to death and destruction. There's another killer who shares this placement with Ed. I think you know his name. Ted Bundy? In addition to his Pluto placement, there are other elements in Ed's chart that we can look at to better understand his behaviors. The first is an early degree Virgo sun, with aspects to Jupiter and Uranus. Virgo is a mutable sign, which like Pisces, Gemini, and Sagittarius, is more changeable and less boundaried than fixed or cardinal signs. Mutable signs are also more influenced by other people than fixed or cardinal signs, and they may learn to change behaviors based on their relationships with those around them. Virgo, in particular, tends to be a sign of service, and we see that with Ed's devotion to his mother. But when Augusta was gone, Ed had no one left to serve, and so he turned the tables a bit and found people to serve his unusual needs. Those people happened to look like his mother. An argument can be made that Ed's son is quintile to his Pluto, since there are just a little bit more than 70.5 degrees between the two planets. If you work within a 1.5 degree orb for this aspect, you may say that there are patterns of control tied to his ego identity, which his mother helped create. Another important planetary aspect in Ed's case is an exact trine between Neptune in Cancer and a retrograde Saturn in Pisces. I see Saturn retrograde in a bunch of criminal charts that I do, and that's not too surprising since people with Saturn retrograde are less inclined to rule following than those with a direct Saturn. In this case, the signs that Saturn and Neptune are occupying are extremely important. Neptune in Cancer is very influential, as Cancer is tied to family, mothers in particular. Meanwhile, Saturn in Pisces makes it easier for Neptune's pull to be felt, as Neptune is the natural ruler of Pisces. Taken with all the signs at play here, this Neptune-Saturn aspect made it really easy for Ed to dissolve society's rules, and is why Ed was naturally inclined to follow his mother's structures instead, ignoring the moral codes that most of us follow. The planets in Ed's chart do a good job of describing his personality, but to understand him more fully, I looked deeper than usual, because I didn't see the amount of exact aspects that I would expect from the chart of a murderer and gravedigger. So I focused in on his asteroids, and I noticed a couple of interesting things regarding how they relate to Pluto. Ed's 23-degree Pluto in Gemini is exactly square the asteroid Juno in Virgo, and also quincunx the asteroid Cupido in 23 degrees Capricorn. Juno gives us information about our tendencies in relationships. Cupido represents what we're attracted to in a partner, and also how we demonstrate our affections. Ed's Cupido, in addition to being tied to Pluto and Juno, is also exactly on the midpoint between his midheaven, the point that generally represents one's mother, and his descendant, which describes one's needs for love in a relationship. To provide a simple interpretation of this Pluto-asteroid interaction, we can say that Ed idolized his mother in an Oedipus complex kind of way. He needed her guidance and also needed to serve her in order to fulfill his partnership needs. When she died, he needed to fill the void that she had left, so he went searching for women who looked like her 
and extended the ultimate power over them by killing them and keeping their body parts as close to him as possible. This helped him avoid feeling the big hole that was left by his mother's death. There is, of course, a lot more to say about Ed Gein's astrology, so I plan on revisiting him in the future in one way or another. But for now, we'll hit the pause button, and I'll see you next week for another episode on an infamous killer. Until then, remember, people may lie, but the stars never do. If you like what you heard today, please share this podcast with your friends and consider leaving a five-star rating. You can follow the podcast on social media using the information in the episode description. Visit my website, killerastrologypodcast.com, for reference information for each episode and more.